I'll only be saying this a few more times, but you can open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, uh, the end is near. There's only a few passages left in James before we finish, but we'll end on a high note, especially with this passage for today, James 5, 13 through 18. It's a well-known passage on sickness, healing, and prayer. It prompts tons of questions. Christians are very interested to know what the Bible says about sickness, prayer, and healing. Questions abound. Does God still heal people? If not, why not? He used to. Out of stunning miracles performed by Christ and the apostles, why would God stop doing that? But if God does still heal people, when, how, how often, why? Does he still use healers? The New Testament mentions a specific gift of healing. People claim to be healers today. You see faith healers on TV. Is that legitimate or not? If not, why not? And what about healing through prayer? Should we pray for people to be healed? If so, how do we explain all the times when people aren't healed? Why would God ever not heal someone? Like I said, questions abound. And maybe I shouldn't give such a broad introduction and and oversell the issue because it's not like we can answer every single question this morning. But it's worth bringing up because every one of these issues seems to, at one point or another, get back to this passage, James 5, 13 through 18. It's because James is directly dealing with the issues of sickness, prayer, and healing. He's got a lot to say about it, and he's not just giving a Bible study. He's giving the church pure application. But of course, we're not going to get the application right unless we get the interpretation right. What does he really mean by sickness, healing? To be sure, godly Christians are divided on this passage, We want to do our best just to understand what he means by what he says, that we can live it out. He has an aim. This is how the church is to live. We want to get that right. So let's start by reading James 5, 13 through 18 now. Almost at the end, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, for some of you, this may sound quite familiar. That's because about three years ago, I I preached through this very passage. We were studying the relationship between sin and sickness, and long before I even knew I was going to preach through James, this came up, so I went through the whole passage. So I guess technically, we could just skip this, and I could say, just download the message on the website and just move on. But I know a lot of you weren't here three years ago, and even that, how many three-year-old sermons do you really remember anyway? So I think we'll all benefit going over this passage again. Now, like I said, it's really all application. James, he's at the conclusion. He's telling us how to live for the sick and for the suffering. This is what we are to do. But we have to tread humbly, recognizing this passage comes with several interpretations There are differing views on what James means by sickness and healing, and that's going to lead you to different applications. 
For example, I met a guy once who literally carried around with him a little vial of oil that he could anoint people physically and, and physically pray for their healing at, at any instance. Ironically, he wasn't an elder of the church, but that was his application. Is that right? If so, why? If not, why not? But you see what I mean, though? Like, to interpret the passage, you've got to get that squared away first before you understand what the application is going to be. I trust that makes sense to you. But since we have a a challenging and contentious passage, I feel the need to walk you through a bit of a deeper Bible study this morning. I could just give you my interpretation, plop it down, take it or leave it, but I feel the need with a passage like this to really show you how we even get to an interpretation of a passage that is saying a lot. And so our time this morning might feel a little more clinical than usual, but I feel it's something we need to do. You've got to put your Bible study caps on and we don't want to neglect this rich application, but I feel we've got to labor to understand the text first. So that's what we're going to do. This passage is known for creating more questions than it answers. But how about we use some of those questions as a framework for our, our, our study? And for the sake of organization, let me give you four questions from James 5, 13 through 18 on sickness, prayer, and healing. This just give us uh, some Places to hang our thoughts on. Four questions on sickness, prayer, and healing. First, what is the nature of this sickness? What is the nature of this sickness? He asks in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And so naturally we ask, what what kind of sickness are we talking about here? You see the word sick in English and, well, naturally you think illness, disease, But when we're interpreting scripture, we don't just go with surface reading or the the basic English meaning of a word. For example, did you know that the word for sick in verse 14 is a different word than the word for sick in verse 15? You wouldn't know that by a surface reading of the passage. And remembering this was written in Greek, when you're trying to get really precise, you got to go a little bit further than the, the surface English reading. Several different key Greek words used here and And this is a case where I think it's going to benefit us to just cover some of that. So we'll do some word studies here. Like I said, taking you a little further on Bible study. Five key words to look at. Let's do that now. You know, we begin with this word for sick in verse 14. It's astheneo in the Greek. It's a Greek word for strength with a negative in front. So it literally means without strength or weak. This could refer to physical weakness spiritual weakness, emotional weakness, financial weakness, whatever it may be. Like most words, it has a range of meaning. In the Gospels, it's used about 20 times, and every time it refers to physical weakness, that is, sickness, illness. But in the epistles, it's used 14 times, and with a few exceptions, always refers to spiritual weakness, those who are weak or weary in the faith. So which is it here in James? We don't know yet. We got to keep going. The second word for sick in verse 15, it's a different word. Like I said, kemno in the Greek. This word primarily has the meaning of being weary, fatigued, and distressed. This is the person who's worn out or exhausted. And that could be brought on by many things. It could be illness. It could be poverty. It could be persecution. Many other things. The only other place this word is used in the New Testament It has the clear meaning of spiritual fatigue. 
That's Hebrews 12.3 where he calls on us to not grow weary or lose heart. He's not talking about physical illness there, but spiritual fatigue. And today we would call this depression. Now you can see James, he uses this second word for sick synonymously with the first word for sick, already gives us a hint that perhaps he's not speaking so much of physical illness, but a spiritual illness. But still, we don't know. We have to keep going. A few more words. The word restore in verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. This is the word sozo. It's the word for save, to save, to be saved. It speaks of deliverance. And again, this deliverance could be from disease, from peril, from death, from damnation. Whatever the case, though, it's clear that the meaning of restore is bound to the meaning of the sickness. James has in mind, whatever this sickness is, that the prayer and faith is going to deliver this person from that sickness. So it's really tied to the meaning of sickness. Same goes for the word raise up. In verse 15, it's bound by our understanding of the sickness. It says the Lord will raise him up. The word agero in the Greek, it can go either way. It could be physical healing, someone's sick, you raise him up. Like when Jesus raised up the paralytic, literally, get up and walk. Or this could be a spiritual raising, like when Christ will spiritually uh, raise people uh, in the future. So we could have a picture of spiritual deliverance from weariness or physical deliverance from illness. And the last word worth looking at in James 5 is the word for healed in verse 16. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The word is yomai in the Greek. And much like the word for sick in the Gospels, It's used primarily of physical healing. But like the word healing in English, it can be used in a spiritual sense as well, a spiritual healing. And so in Matthew 13, 15, it's used of a spiritual healing, that is salvation. And in 1 Peter 2, 24, it's referring to a spiritual healing that Jesus brought as well. So I know that was was fast. It was a whirlwind. Why did we do that? What did we learn so far? Really, to, to start off by establishing the point, why this passage is challenging, is that all five of these words could go either way. Right? James could very well be talking about someone who primarily, they're physically ill, and they need prayer to be physically healed. These words could take us there. But at the same time, these words could be likewise, just as equally talking about someone who is spiritually ill, meaning they're weary, they're depressed, and they need spiritual encouragement through prayer. We, we could be talking about body sickness, or we could be talking about soul sickness. Now, often these two are connected. Someone's physical illness can lead them to spiritual depression. I think we know that. But still, we want to know, like, what does James really mean? What does he intend as the meaning here? And the reality is that just by studying the words alone, you can't tell. And that's the limitation of word studies. By just studying the words alone, all you really learn is how the words might be used. You learn their range of meaning. They could mean this, or they could mean that. That's it. But many words have a wide range of meaning. And the example I always use is the word bar in English. Some of you have heard that before. You look at the word bar in the dictionary, you're going to find dozens of meanings. It can refer to a shape, a long ridge of sand, a barrier, a counter where beverages are served, 
a tavern, a legal profession, a musical division. It goes on. And so it goes for these Greek words. Just look in the dictionary, you're going to find a range of meaning. The real question we want to know, though, is which of those meanings is intended in the text? Like, what does that word mean right here? And you see that that answer will be limited by the dictionary, but not determined by the dictionary. To find what these words mean here, that's going to be determined by what? By the context. So you overhear someone say, you know, my nephew, he, he almost failed college, but he passed the bar with flying colors. That's already enough context for you to know what bar means right then and there. Clearly, it's talking about a legal exam. And this is the power and the function of context to, to show us how words are actually being used. So I hope you're tracking with me. Like I said, going a little further this morning, but I know you never think about this in English because that's our native language. It makes perfect sense. It's natural to us, but Greek is not. It's not natural to us, and that's why we've got to labor a little bit more to understand the context that we can understand these, these words we've never heard of in Greek, how they're being used here. And so let's, let's do that now, study a bit of the context. Think about chapter 5 and really James overall. In James, has he shown any concern for physically ill and sick believers? Or has his concern been for spiritually weak and weary believers? Well, think back to James 1. To whom is he writing? James, he says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad in verse 1. He's writing to Jewish Christians after the first major persecution recorded in Acts chapter 8. And that sent Jewish believers running in all directions. And now they find themselves outcasts. They're scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. They're rejected as Jews and rejected as Christians. They're living in a pagan world. And this, as you can imagine, has led to trials, tribulation, suffering. And so it's not surprising that James, in writing to them, he first and foremost calls them to do what? To patiently endure their various trials. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, or verse 2 even? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's under no impression their hardships will just disappear, but he tells them to patiently endure seeing God's perfecting purpose in their suffering. This is how James opens his letter. has a lot to say about it. And as we've been learning, this is how he closes his letter. Now back to chapter 5, in verses 1 through 6, he condemns the rich for oppressing the poor. And some of these Jewish believers were being economically oppressed and killed by the rich. And then in verses 7 through 11, he tells these believers how to respond, which is to patiently endure. He returns to that opening theme of patient endurance through trials and suffering. Chapter 5, verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. In verse 8, you too, be patient, strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is near. Our rescue from suffering and oppression ultimately is not going to be in this life, but in the next. And so we're to set our hope on Christ's return. And then in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, he uses the example of the prophets plus Job to teach us what? Suffering with patience and endurance. 
So overall, who is James focusing on in the context? Really the whole letter, but especially here in chapter 5. It's suffering, persecuted, oppressed believers who are just having a hard time living in a hostile world. And already this context tells us quite a lot. You can see for yourself, you know, disease or illness is not really in focus here. But the concept of spiritual weakness or weariness, that is precisely what the context is all about. The problem James is addressing is not the flu or body aches or even cancer. It's spiritual oppression. He's talking to people who, because of their intense suffering, they're prone to spiritual weariness. Can you see that? And so he says in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? That word refers to enduring evil treatment by people, not illness. The same word was used to speak of the suffering of the prophets, which which was not brought on by, by sickness, but by oppression and persecution and so forth. And so if that's you, you need to pray. Then he says, look, verse 13, is anyone among you cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. Notice he doesn't say, is anyone healthy? He's not primarily concerned about the state of their body, but the state of their soul. doesn't wonder if they're healthy. Are you cheerful? Is it well with your soul? If so, praise God, sing praises. But you see what's in his mind, the state of their soul. And then right after this, verse 14 is when he says, is any among you sick? For him to all of a sudden bring up disease, it's it's possible, but it seems out of the blue. Rather, I think the context argues that he's just setting his sights on those who have been defeated by their suffering. This would be the spiritually sick, the weak, the discouraged. Don't forget that word for sick in verse 14 can equally refer to spiritual sickness, i.e. weariness, as well as physical sickness. And so I believe James is talking about those who are weak in spirit. They're battered, they're beat down by the, their oppression. And what's interesting is if you really wanted to talk about disease and illness, and that alone, there's some other Greek words he could have used would have removed all doubt. But he didn't. He used these words that could equally refer to spiritual weariness and fatigue. And I believe that the context takes us there. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying physical illness is excluded from this discussion here in James 5. It's not. And what often brings a person to the point of spiritual depression? Sickness, illness. I met a lady once who struggled with chronic pain. Wouldn't go away, nerve pain in her back, and she could find no position of comfort, standing, sitting, lying down, pain. This was over a decade. And you can imagine that would just break somebody down. I don't care how spiritually strong you are, that's that's a trial. And she was clearly spiritually fatigued, weak, depressed, just barely hanging on. There's nothing like disease to make the soul sick. But the point is, primarily, I don't believe James is talking about someone who's physically sick. They may be, they may not be. Primarily, though, he's talking about the person who's spiritually weak and weary. Their faith is flailing. It's brought on by, as he puts it, various trials. There could be illness, could be poverty, could be persecution. But whatever it is, it's leading them to what we would call today depression. 
spiritual depression. I believe that's the primary reference here in James 5. This is a soul sickness. I know most people really take this to refer to just plainly body sickness, but I'm convinced in my study that the text and the context that they show he's primarily talking to and helping believers who are battling soul sickness, i.e. depression. And the closing context of James 5, I believe, confirms this. Like at the end, verse 19 and 20, right after. He says, my brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And no doubt, he's talking about spiritual deliverance there, not physical. But it makes perfect sense because when a believer battles spiritual depression for for long, they're prone to what? To wander, to stray from the faith, even abandon the faith. But if you can turn them back, you will what? He says, save their soul from death. The word save, sozo, same word as save in verse 15. You're not going to save their body. You're going to save their soul from death. The whole context, I think, he's showing he's a concern for the souls of these people. Not always detached from your body, but again, his primary concern is for the state of their soul. So I believe the context is telling us that, that James is giving instruction on how to minister to people primarily who are spiritually sick. They're weak in the faith. They're weary. They're depressed. Brought on by various trials. Now we're not done. I want you to stay with me, and it's, it's heavy, but stick with me. Hopefully, you'll, you'll get it. We're going to see how this view is confirmed and fleshed out. Question two, what is the response to such sickness? What is the response to such sickness? Look again at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What immediately grabs your attention here is that such sick or weak people, they're not just being told to pray for themselves or to pray in general, but to call on the elders of the church to come and pray over them. That's interesting. Who are these elders? I trust you know these elders are the appointed leaders of the local church, elder, pastor, overseer, all refers to the same figure in the local church. And the New Testament pattern is that the local churches would be led by a plurality of these men, and they're tasked with leading, feeding, protecting the flock of God as under-shepherds. That's the elders. All right, that's fine. What's striking, though, is who is absent from a verse like this? It's really interesting, namely, healers. Have you ever thought about that? Like if James is talking primarily here about people who are physically ill, they've got a disease. Why doesn't he call on those with the gift of healing to come heal them? That's what you would expect, but he doesn't. He just says, hey, call for the elders, have them come pray. A little odd. Now to be sure, this scenario here in James 5, this is not the gift of healing in action. The gift of healing was real, New Testament ability endowed by the Holy Spirit to instantly heal someone of any sickness. From Jesus to Peter to Paul, every example we have of the gift of healing in the New Testament, it was instantaneous and complete. Sometimes they prayed beforehand. Oftentimes they did not. They just spoke 
and that person has a new limb, or they spoke, and that person now can walk. But that's not the picture here in James chapter 5. Verse 16 makes that even clearer because he's going to tell the church that this is something they should all be doing for one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. He's expecting the whole church to, in addition to the elders, to participate in this mutual prayer for healing. Whatever that means, that's not the gift of healing because Paul made very clear, not everyone has the gift of healing. But James expects the whole church to engage in this prayer for healing, whatever that means. So again, it's striking though that James calls for the church elders to pray and not for any healers. It's equally striking that in the New Testament, the elders who are Christ's appointed leaders of the local church, they're never required to possess the gift of healing, nor are they ever seen to do so. That's kind of strange too. You'd think that'd be really useful for the leaders of the church. Like you got to have the gift of healing, then you can be an elder pastor. But no, the only gift that God requires of the church leadership is the gift of teaching, the primary gift that we see in in 1 Timothy. But in the context of James 5, this makes perfect sense though, because if he's talking primarily about someone who's not physically ill, but spiritually weak, well then what do they need? They need those who are spiritually strong to come and minister to them, and that would be the elders. They're supposed to be the spiritually strong ones, and if you're spiritually weak, that's who you're going to call. What are the elders to do? Primarily, they are to pray. The Bible makes very clear prayer. That's the right response to any affliction, be it physical or spiritual. And, And for the elders, along with the ministry of the word, prayer is like their job. Ministry of the word and prayer, that's what they're supposed to do. And so they're to pray for the spiritual encouragement and healing of this weak believer. Look, if if physical illness is involved, if if physical uh, sickness is a contributing factor to their weariness, then of course they're going to pray for that as well. And we do that all the time. But primarily here, they're praying for the person's soul, for their spiritual state. Now, he also said in verse 14, I'm sure you're wondering, they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. It's another little added complication, like, what's up with that? What's this oil? As you can imagine, there are many views to what this is, what this means, what we do about it. You have the Catholics, for example. They derived from this verse their sacrament of extreme unction or last rites. That's where a priest will prepare someone's soul for death by anointing them with oil right before they die and praying for them. But that's definitely misguided because in this verse, this is not about delivering someone to death, but saving them from their affliction. Also, many treat this anointing like a a religious ritual or a ceremony, but I've never been convinced of that. There are two words for anoint, alepho and creo. Creo, that's the religious word, the sacramental word. Creo, that's the word used when you have a priest who's going to be anointed to be set set apart for service. A a ceremonial dabbing with oil, picturing, you know, you're set apart, you're anointed. That's not the word used here. This is a lefo for anoint. It's a mundane word. It speaks of anointing with oil for the purpose of hygiene, grooming, or refreshment. And that was very common in the ancient world. Not talking medicine. I don't think this is used medicinally, but just like grooming, refreshment. 
This word speaks of literally rubbing oil on someone as opposed to just dabbing them. And so in Matthew 6, 17, Christ said, when you're fasting, anoint your head with oil. Why? It's part of their grooming regimen. Just don't do anything different. Do your grooming. Anoint your head with oil. Or John 12, 3, Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with oil. And she's rubbing it in. It's not just a dabbing. Now, it's true. Oil has, in Scripture at times, signified the Holy Spirit. And those who see physical healing right here, that they take that, they go with that. I understand that. But with the words, the text, the context, you know, we have a word here used not of ceremonial or religious anointing as a means of divine healing. This is a word referring to just the common practice of using oil as a means of grooming and refreshment. But I think that fits perfectly with what we've learned so far. Because what do the spiritually weak, discouraged, and depressed need more than comfort and refreshment? Spiritually and physically. In the ancient Near East, to anoint someone's head with oil, in a world without showers, that was a means of refreshment. And I believe that's the intention here. Body and soul are connected. We know that. And the elders are to primarily spiritually refresh this person through prayer, but then also by anointing them with oil to physically refresh them, just to give them a a little bit of comfort. This comes in the name of the Lord, on the Lord's behalf, an expression of love and care for the, the battered and beaten down believer. Now, like I said, I know there's many views to this oil, And whichever one you take, what's crystal clear is that the oil is not connected to the healing. Whatever healing he's talking about, James makes it in connection to the prayer. The prayer and faith will restore the one who is sick, never connects it to the oil, whatever case. So let's talk about this now. Question three, what is the result of this prayer? What is the result of this prayer? You have someone who is sick meaning spiritually weak, depressed. The elders are to then pray over them. To what end? Verse 15, he says in the prayer offered in faith, will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So here a promise is given that the prayer in faith will restore or save the one who is sick. And the elders of the church, they should be the ones who are spiritually strong. So they're going to pray in faith. They're the right guys to call. And through their prayers, God promises to restore or raise up or save the one who's sick. As we said before, you know, these words, they can all be used for that this physical dimension or the spiritual dimension. And I think given the context, it's, it's still talking about a spiritual restoration this, I think, best explains the connection to the person's sins. He says, if they've committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. As the elders minister the word of God in prayer, and this person's spiritual depression may be revealed to be in connection to their sin. They may be, they may be so weak and downtrodden in life because of their own waywardness. And so as the elders come around such a depressed believer, if sin is found to be part of the culprit, well, they're going to also minister repentance to them and walk them through repentance. God promises to restore and to forgive such a one. Now, before moving on, I want to address physical healing here. Because, look, through our words, or through our study of the words, and the text, and the context, 
And we've landed on an interpretation of this passage that he's primarily talking about helping those who are spiritually weak, not physically. They're, they're weary, they're depressed. And that means in verse 15, we don't have this promise for physical healing in response to prayer. I'm not all saying God does not heal in response to prayer. He does. We know that. But this verse does not promise that as just a blank check promise. Some people take it that way, though, and so I figured I'd talk about it a little bit. There's actually no promise in Scripture that God will heal you physically every single time in response to prayer. That if you just pray, you'll be healed of your every illness. There's no promise. God might, but he might not. It's simply not a promise he's made. It's up to his hidden will, and, and we don't know that. Now, to be clear, we, we still pray for healing all the time. Someone who becomes physically sick, yeah, we're going to pray that God would physically heal. But that prayer fits in the category of Philippians 4, 6. Let your requests be made known to God. There's no promise that such prayers will always be answered. God may choose to heal, or he may not. But the problem for those who treat James 5 like this blank check problem, promise for healing and some believe that. You see many faith healers operating off this verse you know, based on that. And they see a promise of physical healing. All you got to do is pray in faith and you will be healed every single time. But then they're forced then to really explain away all the healings that do not occur. Why are there just millions of people like Joni Erickson Tata who after so much prayer by so many faithful saints, they're not healed at all? How do you explain that? Has God's promise failed? Well, no, we we can't say that. So the only recourse is then to blame it on the weak faith of the sick person. Well, you just didn't have enough faith to receive this healing. That's such a damaging and, and false doctrine. I mean, how often did Jesus heal people with little to no faith? And also notice this passage, if it is talking about physical healing and the sick person is not healed, who's at fault? The elders, they're the ones being called to, to pray primarily for this person. So if the sick person is not healed, it means their faith is to blame. And this really flips the script on faith healers who use this verse, because if they're claiming that this person will be healed and they're not, technically their lack of faith is to blame. Their insufficient faith is to blame, but you never really hear that. Now we have to mention that Eventually, everyone learns the hard way that there's no promise, there's no blank check promise for healing in response to prayer every single time, because everyone eventually gets sick and dies. So we see one by one, many faith healers, they get sick and they're not healed. A few years ago, Rod Parsley is a faith healer. He got throat cancer and he did not attend any of his own healing crusades. He didn't call up his healing buddies to come pray and heal him. He very quietly went to the doctor and got chemo and radiation, which was the right thing to do, but it's simply not always God's will for you to be physically healed. And so Elisha, the great healer, dies of sickness. And Paul, he was plagued with several illnesses and many were not healed. He even left other people sick, like Trophimus, he left sick in Miletus. Why did he do that? Why not pray and heal him? Or Timothy or Paphroditus, why didn't he pray and heal them? Jesus frequently did not heal people. Mark chapter 1, a huge crowd was waiting for Jesus to heal them, and he left. 
In John 5, you have a, a multitude of sick people by the pool of Bethesda. And Christ heals one guy and leaves the rest. He clearly had the power to heal them all, but it was not God's will at the time. And then there's Lazarus. When Jesus heard his friend, Lazarus, was sick, he could have healed him right then and there, long distance, no problem. But on purpose, he didn't. He let his friend die on purpose. Now, you know the greater purpose behind that, that he could show his greater glory in raising him from the dead. But often, we don't know the greater purpose behind when God leaves our sickness. We've learned, though, God has many good purposes in doing so. We just can't presume on his hidden will. And that's a point James himself makes. Remember back in James 4, 14 through 15. He says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Right? If the Lord wills, we'll live. If the Lord wills, we'll be healed. And that's how we pray physically. If the Lord wills, let us be healed. But you have to come to terms with the fact that this is a fallen world, plagued and cursed by sin and sickness and death. We're going to suffer. God can and does still heal people in response to prayer. So we're going to faithfully pray all the time. You're going to let our requests be made known to God. But you have to realize God often has greater purposes in saying no to that request. And so as you pray, you need to trust him and submit yourself to his perfect will. Our hope is not in this life anyway. Paul himself prayed for his weakness in the flesh to be removed. He used the same word for sickness as in James 5.14. God did not heal him in that case. But God's promise didn't fail because there is no blank check promise for physical healing. But God's promise for spiritual strength, that always comes to pass when you pray. And that's what we have here. This still stands that those who've been battered down by the world, the oppressed, that they're made weary. It could be because of physical illness or, or something else. They're still victorious in Christ and they need only to pray in faith to see God's power strengthen them. God's power is, is there available to help them endure. They only need to pray. And this is going to bring us to finally number four. What is the application for the church? A fourth question what is the application to all this for the church? And the application for us, obviously, is prayer. Verse 13, if you're suffering, pray. If you're suffering and losing, if you're weak and weary, if you're spiritually depressed, then seek out the church elders. Have them come pray for you to lift you up. Let them encourage and refresh your soul. If you're spiritually weak, Go to the spiritually strong and find encouragement that you need. And notice this is not actually just for the elders. Look at verse 16. He adds another dimension. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much And this is how James applies this lesson to the church. This confession of sin and prayer is something we all should be doing for one another all the time. Lest we get to the point of spiritual fatigue. 
So don't let hidden sin remain in your life. It will shipwreck your faith. Instead, confess to one another. Seek forgiveness if you have wronged others. Hold one another accountable. And then pray for one another. Lift up one another, he says. He doesn't give the impression that our various trials, whether it's physical or otherwise, will vanish. That's not the point. The admonition is to endure despite them. Even as they remain, to patiently endure. Strengthen your hearts. The Lord's coming is near. That's our hope. And that's what James 5 has been about, the whole chapter. And some people, they grow so weak and weary in the, in the race of, of faith that they need the elders to come and, and help them. But I would pray that you would so encourage and pray for one another that it would not even get to that point. That's what verse 16 is about. And he finishes with a perfect illustration that wraps us all up. Look at verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This illustration has confused many people because it seems not to fit. Like, why on earth did James not use the example we read this morning, 1 Kings 17, of Elijah praying to raise the boy from the dead? Where if James is talking about physical healing in response to prayer, that's the perfect illustration. This boy's sick, he dies, Elijah prays to God in faith, and he raises from the dead. Like, come on, that's, that's a done deal. But he doesn't use that. He doesn't use that or any other illustration of Elijah healing people through prayer. He instead picks the one episode of, of the rain and the drought. Why? But this fits perfectly into James's argument. First, it shows the power of prayer. Elijah was praying in accordance to the will of God, and such a prayer in faith will always be answered. But secondly, it shows how prayer can bring God's refreshment. What better picture is there of, of a beaten and battered soul than dry, parched land? Your spirit is dried up. That may be in connection to your sin, like it was in Elijah's day. But through prayer and faith, God's rain comes, so to speak, and the land is refreshed. It's really a perfect illustration. And that is what James is promising here in chapter 5. God may or may not heal your body. But the promise is for your soul. That he will lift your spirits. He will enable you to continue to endure in the faith. Even as you suffer. That promise and faith will never fail. And you must endure. Notice he says Elijah was a man like ours. A nature like ours. He wasn't a superman. He was a great prophet. He's just like us though. Meaning you too. You can pray for yourself. For others. That they would receive God's joy. And encouragement in their soul. That they might endure. And that's what you must do. Lift one another up in prayer. And it's at this same train of thought we find an important parallel passage. We'll finish here. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It's almost the same context, and it uses the same words for sickness and healing. But the same connection is made not to physical healing, but to spiritual encouragement. And so we read this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. 
Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who had endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow sick, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. It sounds like James 5. And these are the promises we live by. Jesus, he redeemed us holistically, body and soul. But in this fallen world, until his kingdom comes, the curse reigns. And so even Jesus did not escape suffering. And neither will we. Often comes in the form of sickness. But our hope is not here. Our hope is with him, the author and finisher of our faith. He's already redeemed our inner man. He's made our spirits new. All we're waiting for is the redemption of our bodies. But that won't come until he comes. And so for right now, as we're left behind on this earth, we have one thing to do. And that is finish the race. To run with endurance the race that is set before us. You have to endure your own cross. The cross of discipleship, as Christ put it, that comes in many forms. But as with Jesus himself, the cross comes before the crown, not the other way around. And you, what you need to do is just fix your eyes on him. Has not been what James is trying to get us to do over and over? Through prayer, as you lay aside sin, he's going to give you the strength you need to just keep running. Even when you're sick and you're not healed, you're going to keep running. That takes greater power, and I think that's the greater miracle. When someone is sick and not healed, they are clinging to Christ nonetheless. God is merciful. He is compassionate. And when Christ comes, we will enter into the fullness of that joy. And James, like Hebrews, just continually trying to get us to set our minds on Christ and the nearness of his coming. That's our hope. And for now, you just got to finish the race. To see him, you got to finish the race of faith. You do that by setting your mind not on things below, but on things above, where Christ, had, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You do that by praying to him, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And you help others do that by praying for them and encouraging them day by day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Just learn that the Christian race is not a solo sport. You learn from James 5 that God wants us to run together, to help one another, to lift one another up. Are you tired in the faith? Are you tired of running? Do you feel weak and weary and fatigued? Your legs starting to buckle under the pressure of it all. If that's, if that's you, don't forsake the assembly as Hebrews would tell us. Don't pull away. Draw near. God has given us, we learn in James 5, the gift of the church from the elders on down, plus the power of prayer to be the means by which the rain comes, 
so to speak, by which all the refreshment and encouragement we need to keep running, it's going to come through the church plus prayer. And so despite all the challenges of this text, if you learn anything this morning, learn that the church plus prayer is the means of God's power for us to finish this race. And therefore, let's pray. Let us pray. Lord, we want to pray now. We, we need your encouragement. The race goes on, and it's hard. You've called us to follow Christ, and that comes by denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following him, by trusting in him with, and through faith and repentance, and, and walking his walk. That comes with hardship. Carrying a cross, that, that's not easy. That's a means of death. And when we follow Christ, we gain the world and Satan as our enemies. That comes with affliction and persecution, not to mention just sickness from living in a fallen world. Life is hard. Following Christ is harder than it can be difficult, Lord. Apart from your strength, we all would have given up by now. But we need you to help us to keep going. We need to, to recognize the cloud of witnesses. We need to set our minds and eyes on Christ alone and then press on. Help us, Lord. We pray now for the sick and the suffering. Physically, heal them. Show your compassion and mercy on their bodies. But Lord, we pray that so that their souls would be encouraged, that their souls may be saved. And that's what matters most. Because our hope is not in this world. It's cursed and it's fallen. We await the redemption of our bodies. And for that, we must simply endure this race of faith and, and press on. So strengthen us now, even through this prayer. And may we be praying for one another, caring enough for others that we get in their lives and we just we pray for them. We encourage them. Every day we need that, that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So show us, Lord. Teach us to pray for our beloved brothers and sisters. And by this mutual encouragement, May we press on until Christ comes. In his name we pray. Amen.